I'm reading from John 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Good morning, I'm Jim Jeffrey, one of the pastors here at Chapel Point, and I want to know, are you ready for the word of God today? Did you come thirsty for Jesus today? That's the question of the day. Did you come thirsty for Jesus today? You know, there's a couple different kinds of thirst. There's a thirst that you have in the desert because there's no water there. But you realize you can be thirsty in the middle of the Atlantic or Pacific Ocean, surrounded by salt water that you cannot drink because it would be destructive to you. Water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. The poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge in his famous poem, The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, which was written all the way back in 1798. The speaker is a sailor who is in a, in a sailboat in the middle of a windless ocean and has no water on board because there has been no rain. Listen to what he says in this poem. Day after day, day after day, we stuck no breath nor motion, as idle as a painted ship in a painted ocean. Water, water everywhere, and all the boards did shrink. Water, water everywhere, nor any drop to drink. How many of you have ever read the book or seen the movie Unbroken? Okay, if you've not read that or seen it, it's not an easy book to read. It's not an easy movie to watch. It's a true story about an Olympic runner who in World War II was on a bomber in the Pacific. Shot down, he survived, along with just a few others, in a raft. But after a while, their water and their ability to turn um, salt water into fresh water was gone, and there was no rain. So their lips were parched, their throats were dry, and they were dehydrating. And, and yet they were surrounded by salt water that they could not drink. Friends, I, I think that's like the world we live in. People are trying to find satisfaction in that which actually would dehydrate them and destroy them. Because apart from Jesus, your soul can find no satisfaction. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. As we continue in this study of no middle ground, we're going to see what that really means in this chapter. And after this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea. He wouldn't travel there because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Kind of mark that because multiple times in this chapter, it's going to talk about the fact that the Jewish leaders were already trying to kill him all the way back to chapter 5. We're told that. And then the timing of this event, the Jews' feast of booths or of tabernacles was at hand. So that's a setting you have a geographic movement in this chapter of Jesus ultimately is going to go from Galilee to Jerusalem to the temple, and then the end of the chapter, you're in the, the uh, chambers of the Sanhedrin. 
The first part of the chapter talks about Jesus and his brothers, then Jesus and the crowd, and Jesus and the Sanhedrin, and the, and the priests, and the, those that were in charge. But it's interesting, as you look at the Feast of Tabernacles, which is the setting of this, you have to understand that this is really a, a reminder, a feast of Israel, one of the many feasts that they had, that reminds us of the faithfulness of God. Like our Thanksgiving, this particular feast took place at the end of September to October. I know Thanksgiving is in November, but, but it was a Thanksgiving celebration. The ingathering of the crops was celebrated. But we also see that it was the provision of God looking back to the wilderness wanderings. Let me just share with you from the book of, um, the book of Leviticus, chapter 23, and starting at verse 15. You shall count seven full weeks from after the day of, of Passover. Seven full weeks after the day of t- Passover. And you shall then bring a wave offering to the Lord. You can count 50 days to the days after the seventh Sabbath. You're to present a grain offering to the Lord. And you're to bring all of these sacrifices to God. And when they did that, they were to bring this burnt offering and they were to remember when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field to the edge. You are to do this in a way that is commemorating what God has done. And so the Feast of Tabernacles was going to be a time when they remembered not only the ingathering of the crops, but they were to look back on the wandering, the wandering of the wilderness. And that becomes very important in what Jesus is going to say in the middle of this passage. So not only do you have it as a feast of ingathering and have it as a reminder of the wilderness wanderings, but the, the Jews were to actually construct um, temporary dwellings. They were to take poles and create a structure. They were to put the palm branches and different kind of branches over that. And for seven days, they were to live there, looking back and remembering how God had been faithful in the wilderness wanderings. As you look in the rest of the Old Testament, two important events happens on the Feast of Tabernacles. Solomon's temple is dedicated according to 1 Kings 8, and also the, the so, so he chooses that day to dedicate his temple, to celebrate the faithfulness of God. In Nehemiah chapter 8, there is a spiritual awakening that takes place, and it happens at the Feast of Tabernacles. Nehemiah reminded the people they hadn't been practicing this feast. They were to do that to commemorate how God had been faithful to them. In the looking forward in scripture, in Zechariah chapter 14, we're told in the coming kingdom of Jesus, they're going to, we are going to in the future celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. Zechariah 14. Matter of fact, it's interesting, all nations are to be required in the kingdom of Jesus to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles, to celebrate the faithfulness of God. Matter of fact, if you don't, it says you're not going to get any rain. So people are going to be required in the millennial kingdom of Jesus to do that. This Feast of Tabernacles is kind of the center here. We've already seen the holy day of the Sabbath focused on chapter 5, the Passover on chapter 6. Chapter 7 all the way to the middle of chapter 10 takes place at the Feast of Tabernacles. And then we have Hanukkah, the Feast of Lights that takes place at the end of that, of of chapter 10. So here we, we have this setting and it's very important very important to what we're, what we're seeing and what we're reading. So I want you to, I want you to think about this. When we, when we consider the Feast of Tabernacles, and when we consider what's going on here, I want you to notice Jesus' brothers from verse 3 down to verse 10. The focus is on Jesus' brothers. They're in Galilee. 
And his brothers say to him, leave here, leave Galilee, go to Judea, that your disciples, those that are your followers, may see your works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. So I want you to just notice here a couple things. They say, if you do these things, in other words, if you're really doing the miracles you're claiming to do, and then we have this explanation, his brothers did not believe in him. His brothers, those that Mary had after Jesus was born, did not believe in him. They grew up with Jesus, but they didn't believe in him. Familiarity without faith. They had gotten to know Jesus. Now, there are some traditions that say Jesus did a whole lot of miracles as a little boy, but there's no record of that in any of the Gospels. Matter of fact, the only record we have of something Jesus did is when he was 12 years old, went up to the temple and interacted with the teachers, and they marveled at his teaching. But can you imagine growing up in a household with Jesus as your older brother? I mean, he always does everything right. He was always submissive to the parents. And you can imagine that the brothers may have resented that. There's always sibling rivalry in a family, at least in the family I grew up in. I had two older brothers and a younger sister. There was sibling rivalry. They they maybe felt some of that. But here's what I do know. They were familiar with Jesus but had no faith. My friends, you may be here today, and you may be very familiar with the Bible, You may be very familiar with Jesus, but until you put your faith in him, friends, you will never find the satisfaction that he offers when he says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Familiarity without faith is not Christianity. Familiarity without faith does not satisfy. I want you to notice then the crowd. The crowd was curious, but they were not committed. So Jesus goes up, um, but in verse 10 After saying to his brothers, he says, my time has not yet come. Your time is always here. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going to the feast. My time has not yet come. You see, the brothers were on Brothers Eastern Standard Time, and Jesus was on Will of God Central Time. He was going to do the will of God. And there are several references in this chapter to Jesus' sense of timing. He was totally submitted to the will of the Father. So his brothers are saying, go up. He's saying, I'm not going up until the Father shows me to do that. And he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, he went up not publicly initially, but in private. Meanwhile, the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, were looking for him at the feast. And they said, where is he? And look at the crowd now. Much muttering, much murmuring about him among the people. And look at the different opinions. Some say he's a good man. That's all that they knew about him. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. And for fear of, of, of the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, nobody would speak openly of him. So in the middle of the feast, in verse 14, Jesus goes up to the temple and he starts teaching. And the Jewish leaders react by saying, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? In other words, he doesn't have a degree from our seminary. He hasn't studied under our rabbis. He has not been taught. Where did he learn to teach like this? There's two mentions in this chapter about the teaching of Jesus, but here's the Pharisees and the leaders of the Jews marveling at the teaching of Jesus. So Jesus speaks about his teaching. He tells them his teaching wasn't his own. 
He tells them, if you really want to know what I teach, you have to first surrender to the will of God. Verse 17. Friends, you don't come to the Bible to get an option. You come to the Bible to get God's guidance and God's direction. He said, if any man knows my will and does my will, surrenders to my will, he will know. Friends, don't come to the Bible as a multiple choice option. Come to the Bible and say, God, I will surrender my will to your word. He says, you'll know whether I'm speaking from my own authority. The one who speaks by his own authority is seeking his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me, in this case, God the Father, is true. There's no falsehood. Didn't Moses give you the law? And yet you're not keeping the law. Why are you seeking to kill me? Multiple references in this chapter about their attempt to kill Jesus. But look at the crowd's reaction in verse 20. You have a demon who's seeking to kill you. What blasphemy. They're saying to Jesus, you are demon-possessed because you think someone's trying to kill you. You've got a persecution complex, we would say today. And Jesus said, listen, I did one work, the healing of the lame man, and you marveled at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and he said, you circumcise on the Sabbath, but you're angry with me because I made a man's whole body well. Don't judge by appearances, judge by right judgment. So you see the tension that is just happening. There's like a tornado that's churning here in all of these different views of Jesus with the crowd, with the, with the Pharisees. Some of the people of, of Jerusalem said, isn't this the one that they're seeking to kill? And here he is speaking openly. He's there in the temple teaching, and they say nothing about him. Can it be that the authorities really know this is the Christ? In other words, do you think that the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees are convinced that this is really the Messiah? And then there's another opinion. He says, but where this man comes from, we don't know. Could this really be the Christ? Because when Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. Some had a mystical view of the Messiah that he's just going to appear, and we won't know where he's from. And Jesus proclaims as he's teaching, he says, you know me, you know where I come from, and I didn't come of my own accord. The one that sent me is true, meaning the Father, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. And they were seeking to arrest Jesus because no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Jesus is being controlled by the will of the Father and the plan of the Father for redemption. But many of the people, in verse 31, believed on him and said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisee hears this murmuring going on with the crowd, and they send officers to arrest him. And Jesus says, I'll be with you a little longer than I'm going to the one that sent me. You're going to seek me, but you're not going to find me. Where I go, you cannot come. And the Jewish leaders said to one another, where is this man intended to go that will not find him? Where is he going to escape to? Is he going to go to the dispersion of the Jews and, and hang out with the Hellenistic, uh, Greek-speaking Jews? What does he mean when he says, you will seek me and not find me? Go a little further in verse 40. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet, meaning he is the one who fulfills what Moses promised in Deuteronomy, that there would be a prophet like me, another mediator of another covenant. And others said, he is the Christ, he is the Messiah, the anointed one who will be the prophet, priest, and king. And then some said, is the Christ the Messiah to come from Galilee? And they're, they're remembering Micah 5.2 that says he's to be of the offspring of David and to come from Bethlehem. And they were confused because though Jesus was born in um, Bethlehem, he was raised in Nazareth. I was born in South Norwalk, Connecticut. I was raised in upstate New York. Here, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, and they were confused about that. 
So there was a division among the people. There was no middle ground. There was conflict among the people, and yet no one could lay hands on him because his time had not yet come. So his brothers had familiarity with no faith, but the crowd were curious, but many of them not committed. Friends, you may have come today curious about Jesus. It's okay to be curious for a period of time as you begin to investigate the claims of Christ. But if you stay just curious and not committed, you will never find the satisfaction that Jesus offers when he says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Being curious about Jesus isn't the same as being committed to Jesus in faith. Are you curious? What's keeping you from being committed? Being curious about Jesus, simply being, having your own opinion about Jesus, but not letting the Word of God drive that and determine that? Curiosity without commitment does not lead to faith and will never lead you to the satisfaction that is only found in Jesus. So the brothers were familiar but had no faith. The, the crowd was curious but not committed. And then look at the, the, the priests and the Pharisees. They were religious but had no relationship. So think about this. The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, the leaders of the Jews, they are very religious in everything they did. But they had no relationship with God through Christ the mediator. And so they're searching for Jesus. They're trying to kill Jesus. They send officers to arrest Jesus. They're confused about his statements. And they later say, have any of the authorities, the Sanhedrin or the the Pharisees, believed in Jesus? Friends, you can be religious but have no relationship with Jesus. There are a lot of people that are religious. They will go to church. They will practice their religion. They may even read the Bible. They may have their their practices spiritually. But friends, religion without relationship is not what the gospel's about. You will never find your satisfaction in Jesus unless it is more than just a religious practice. Now friends, I've been all of those things in my own life in the past. There's, I grew up very familiar with Jesus, but didn't have saving faith until I was 12 years old. I would be one that was curious, but not committed to Jesus. I was interested in what he taught, but I hadn't committed my life to him. I, I could be one of those who was be considered religious, but I didn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ until I came to understand that the thirst I had inside was a spiritual thirst that only he could satisfy through his cross, through his resurrection, through the gospel of Jesus. Only by his grace could I ever have that spiritual thirst, that water, water everywhere, nor a drop to drink. That was me, a part soul, until I came to Jesus. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're very familiar, but you don't have faith, and you're curious, but you're not committed, and you're religious, but you don't have a relationship. Friends, I want to plead with you. You will never find the satisfaction that Jesus offers in this passage when he says, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Are you thirsty for Jesus today? Are you thirsty for Jesus? I want you to notice there are some that did come thirsty Verse 12, this, this, some in the crowd did believe. They said he's a good man. They're beginning to believe. Verse 31, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this? Verse 40 and 41, some said he is the prophet. He is the Christ, the Messiah. There are some, maybe a minority, that did believe in him. And today, friends, if you're here and you have put your faith in him, you have found the satisfaction that this world doesn't know anything about. The old hymn writer said it well. I thirsted in the barren land of sin and shame, and nothing satisfying there I found. 
Until the blessed cross of Christ one day I came, where springs of living water did abound. I found satisfaction in Jesus. Have you found it? If you have found it, friends, then be careful that you don't turn away from finding the satisfaction in him to try to find those lesser things to satisfy you because they never can. They never can. Uh, The officers, I think they may have found some satisfaction. They come to Jesus. Check out verse 46. So the the officers, these soldiers, maybe Roman soldiers, maybe Jewish soldiers, are sent by the chief priests, and they come back now, and they didn't arrest Jesus. Can you imagine? They show up in the council court of the Sanhedrin without Jesus, which brings an instant reaction. They said, why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. (laughs) Uh, That's a statement about the teaching of Jesus. Nobody ever taught like him. He taught so that the common people could understand in parables and metaphors and stories. And, and he, he had an understanding of that, that was deeper than anyone else's. And by the way, for, for these officers to say that in the presence of the Sanhedrin, who were the teachers of Israel, the ones who stood up in the temple and preached, nobody ever taught like this man. In other words, we've heard all that you've given, but nobody ever taught like Jesus. Whew. They were a little miffed at their, what they're saying. Have you also been deceived? So I think it's possible that these officers were beginning to believe in Jesus. And then at the very end of the chapter, there's one person in the Sanhedrin, one of the Pharisees that speaks up to defend Jesus. And he's somebody we already know, Nicodemus. Mentioned in chapter 3, at the end of the gospel, he's the one that helps take the body of Jesus down from the cross. And here, Nicodemus speaks to defend Jesus. When they are speaking about him, Nicodemus, who had gone before him and was one of them, that is, he's a Pharisee, he's a member of the Sanhedrin, says to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he has done? He's saying, basically, Sanhedrin, you are violating your own law. You are violating your own code of ethics and how you are to operate kind of in your face. They get angry at him and said, are you from Galilee? Search and see. No prophet arises from Galilee. And they all check out and go home. Nicodemus believed. Nicodemus who came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus that Jesus spoke John 3.16 to. Nicodemus that understood the new birth after that has now showing that he's willing to speak up and to defend Jesus. By the way, if you aren't willing to speak up for Jesus in this culture then I question where you are. If you don't have the the boldness to be able to speak up for Jesus on his behalf, Nicodemus was willing to risk it all to speak up for Jesus, and he did. I want you to to go back with me then to the middle of this text. Verse 37. On the last day of the feast, seven-day feast, on that great day of the feast, this is the crescendo This is the apex. This is when everything's coming to a head. Jesus stood up, and he cries out with a loud voice at that moment, if any man thirst, come to me and drink. And then John gives this explanation. Out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. This Jesus speaks of the Spirit because the Spirit had not yet been given because Jesus had not yet gone back to heaven and, and, and been glorified. If any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Let me tell you what's going on in the feast. At this point of the feast, 
from what we understand from, from the rabbinical traditions and what happened in ancient Israel, they would celebrate one of the things that showed the faithfulness of God in the Feast of Tabernacles, in the wilderness wanderings, how God provided water for this huge multitude of people in the middle of the desert. He tells Moses, take a, your rod, go strike the rock that I showed to you, and from it, water is going to come out to satisfy the thirst of everyone. Remember that. So the high priest would take a pitcher, he would leave the Temple Mount, go through the water gate, not the water gate of uh, Richard Nixon, the water gate in the, in the um, wall of Jerusalem. He would go down through there, down the steps, to the pool of Siloam. He would there take the pitcher, fill it with water, and he would carry it back up the steps through the water gate to the temple, and there would be trumpets blowing, there'd be parade, great fanfare while this is happening. And he would then pour that water out at the base of the altar to commemorate and remember the water from the rock. It is at that moment, I believe, that Jesus is saying, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, listen, familiarity doesn't cut it without faith. Curiosity without commitment doesn't cut it. Religion without relationship will not satisfy. But he says, I have come and whoever believes in me will find satisfaction that can't be found anyplace else. Now, I want you to think about some other places in the Bible where spiritual satisfaction in Christ is spoken of. Listen to these verses. Psalm 42, verse 1 to 2. As the deer pants for flowing streams, so might pants my soul for you. O God, my soul thirsts for God, the living God. Psalm 63, 1. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you in a day, in a weary land where there is no water. Isaiah 44, 3, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing upon your descendants. Isaiah 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Matthew 5, 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. John 4, whoever drinks of this water I will give him will never thirst again. The water I give him will be like a water springing up, welling up to eternal life. John 6.35, whoever believes in me will never thirst. And catch this, John 19.28, Jesus says, I thirst on the cross. Why? Because he was becoming sin for us and, and, and so experiencing the separation and the part soul that comes from that. And he says, I thirst. Revelation 21.6, to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. And Revelation 22.17, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So I ask you this morning, are you thirsty for Jesus? Are you thirsty for Jesus? Well, dear friends, I, I don't assume that every, everyone in a place like this has moved from familiarity to faith. I don't assume that everyone in this place has moved from being curious about Jesus to being committed to Jesus. I don't assume that you've moved from just being religious to having a relationship with Jesus. But I want to say to you, only Jesus can satisfy the thirst of your soul. Only Jesus through the gospel can do that. My friends, Money will not satisfy the thirst of your soul. Possessions will not satisfy the thirst of your soul. Sex will not satisfy the thirst of your soul. 
Even family will not satisfy the thirst of your soul. Your profession will not satisfy the thirst of your soul. Your education, apart from the fear of God, will not satisfy the thirst of your soul. Experiences and vacations and all of those things will not, a new shopping spree will not satisfy the thirst of your soul. Marrying the right person will not satisfy the thirst of your soul. The only one who can satisfy the thirst of your soul is Jesus. He's the one who said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his innermost being will flow rivers of living water, speaking of the spirit that he would teach about in John 14 to 16. So I ask you, are you thirsty for Jesus today? Are you thirsty for Jesus? Are you trying to satisfy your thirst spiritually in a way that it can never be satisfied? And if you have found that satisfaction in Jesus, are you willing to share with everyone else that's in an ocean, water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink? Because, friends, there are, there are sin-parched souls all around you that can only find satisfaction in Jesus. And we've got the message. We've got the message. If you have never personally trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, I want to invite you. you. You can try everything you want, and you will not find satisfaction outside of him. Jesus said, I'm come that you might have life and have it abundantly. David said, my cup runs over. Satisfaction only comes in Jesus. Soul satisfaction can only come in him. We have a prayer room right in the back there, an opportunity for you to go and pray with some people that can help you know about Jesus. Help you pray to trust Jesus. You can move today from familiarity to faith. You can move today from curious to committed. You can move today from religious to a relationship with him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word, for its clarity and its power, that it actually is the very thing that can engender faith in a human soul. Lord Jesus, thank you that you are the one who said, if any man thirsts, let him come to me. Let him believe in me. Holy Spirit of God, thank you that you are the one who once we find that satisfaction in Christ, you indwell us, you fill us, you overflow from us so that we can care for others and we can continue to live in relationship, in commitment and faith to you. Lord, may we this day Find our greatest satisfaction in you alone. In Jesus' name, amen.